You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Saturday, October 7th, it was a Jewish Sabbath that the Islamic resistance movement known as Hamas coordinated several attacks on the Israeli people. It resulted in the deaths of 859 civilians, 349 soldiers and policemen, with an additional 250 soldiers and civilians taken hostage, some of whom are still uh, in a hostage situation. Uh, This eventually resulted in what we now refer to as the Israel-Hamas War. Uh, The initial attack is considered the bloodiest day in Israel's modern history and the deadliest day for Jewish people since the Holocaust. And like most things involving Israel, it became almost instantly a global concern. At least 44 nations have denounced the attack as terrorism, while many Arab Muslim nations blame Israel for uh, sort of instigating this entire thing to begin with. Regardless, the world is not at peace. People are not at peace, and yet we find ourselves this morning in week two of our Advent series with the monumental task to talk about how peace has come in the advent of Christ. Peace is a far more complex idea than we often acknowledge, I think, mainly because it can mean so many different nuanced things in the way we communicate, right? We use the term in a lot of ways. Peace can refer to, for example, a lack of fighting or war. Think peace treaty, right? Similar to the so-called Camp David Accord, signed in 1978 to establish peace between Egypt and Israel. Uh, Peace can not only make us think of lack of fighting or war, but also songs about a lack of fighting or war, like the 1971 Christmas Disaster by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Merry Xmas, War is Over, which by the way, let me just side note here, I did this first service as well, this is how you can tell my filter's not working, pray for third service. Merry Xmas is one of those things that uh, gets a lot of heat in Christian communities, taking Christ out of Christmas. Um, Actually... Merry Xmas is a very sound, historically sound way of of talking about Christmas because the X is a uh, replacement for the Greek chi, which is a short term for Christ in the early church. So the next time someone says Merry Xmas to you, say, thank you for being so orthodox and historically sound (laughs) in your Christianity. See what that does. That'll be great. Peace can also sometimes just convey the idea of tranquility, right? A place by the water. A nice sunset, it's tranquil, it's calming, it's peaceful. In the context of our featured Christmas carol this morning, Away in a Manger, peace, I think, falls more into this category than any of the others. Tranquil, quiet, calm. Listen to the words again. It says, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. I mean, this song paints this wonderful picture, right, of the sleeping baby Jesus and the stars peacefully shining down upon him on this cool and wonderful Bethlehem night. And look at the next line, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. There's, there's nothing more peaceful than a newborn baby waking up and miraculously not crying, amen? Peace, 
peace on earth, praise God. Peace is needed in this world. And yet so often it feels very far from us. And so this morning what I want us to talk about is how the the ways we can experience peace in the here and now, in this present life, in between Advents. Last week we talked about how there is hope in between Advents, the first Advent of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the second Advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. We we have these future promises of these themes, and you know, they're they're brought in here, and then they're 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 gonna be totally fulfilled here. But how do we experience them in the here and now, in between Advents? We're going to talk about that this morning. There is a future promise of peace, of absolute peace when Christ returns, when he ushers in peace throughout all the nations. But that day is not, at least at this point, now. So how do we live with peace now? We may not be able to experience the full five-course meal of peace that comes in the second advent. But we can have peace today. It might be an amuse-bouche of peace, if you will, right? An hors d'oeuvre of peace. I was way more proud of that. Than I, you are clearly not foodies, and that's okay. It's fine, but there is peace nonetheless. The question is where? Where do we find it? If you have your Bibles, open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the last chapter in the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, if you make it to Galatians, you've gone too far. You need to hang a left. Uh, in this Last chapter of this book, we're going to be covering just one verse this morning, verse 11. Verse 11 is the beginning of the very last thing that Paul has to say to the believers in Corinth. That's his final greeting, as it were. And in this verse, Paul tells us the places where we can find real and lasting peace. Look at verse 11 together. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. If you want peace in your life, here are the places that you can find it. The first one is this, you can find peace in the midst of broken people rejoicing. You can find peace in the midst of broken people rejoicing. Now, before we begin, let me just explain something, that verse 11 is a combination of five imperatives in the Greek, which are commandments. Uh, In other words, these are things that you don't need to pray about. You you need to do them. They're commandments of God. Uh, There's no real discussion needed. Look at the first commandment Paul gives. It's very simply rejoice. Rejoice. It's a strange commandment, isn't it? We like to think of rejoicing as something that is almost reactionary and out of our control. You you rejoice when you feel joy. and, And if you don't feel joy, you don't rejoice. It's not something you can really conjure on your own. It's not something you just decide to do. It's the Greek kairete from Cairo, and it's a word that means to be glad or full of joy or joyful. It's a term often connected with worship and praise. When you come to worship Christ, you are to do so with joy, full of joyful praise. Joy is actually the theme for next week. It's the third theme of Advent. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about it this morning, but I, I want you to notice that I said peace can be found in the midst of Broken people rejoicing. Now, where in verse 11 do we find broken people? Why did I say that? The answer is, of course, nowhere in verse 11 can that be found. But when you consider that verse 11 immediately follows everything Paul has just said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1, verses 13, or through 13, 10, you remember there's context here. That, that Paul, what he has said in In verse 11 of chapter 13, uh, it it might be important to understand what he said prior to that to know the real 
kind of underlining behind what he's saying in verse 11. When you evaluate 2 Corinthians, you learn a lot of things about this letter. For example, it's a letter of correction. It follows a letter of even worse correction in 1 Corinthians. Paul has to correct the people in Corinth for a variety of things that are both sinful and immature. In fact, he talks about that letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, for I wrote to you, talking about 1 Corinthians, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is akin, by the way, to a father paddling his son and saying, I want you to know this hurts me just as much as it hurts you. (laughs) He knew that this first letter was going to be hard to read. It's full of rebuke. Second Corinthians comes along. It's also corrective, maybe not quite as corrective, but also corrective. In fact, right before our verse, verse 11, if you look back to verse 10, it says, for this reason... I write these things while I am away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. In other words, he's like, I'm writing you this letter now to get this out of the way, to uncover your sins here so that when I get there, I don't have to do it in person, but I can just build you up. I can come back and build you up and and edify you in that way. And then he says, immediately following verse 11, and finally, brothers, rejoice. I mean, what a weird thing to say, right? After being told all of the ways that you have fallen short of the glory of God and you are in need of repentance, you sinner. And then he's like, now go listen to some worship hymns. (laughs) What is going on here? Who actually feels like rejoicing after having your sin uncovered? I think this passage is tremendously important because it reveals what motivates and inspires true worship. Paul's command to rejoice, understand this, is built on a foundational truth concerning Christ and the gospel. We can rejoice in worship and in praise after having just been rebuked because even though our sins have just been fully uncovered, hear this, Christ loves you. When we read Romans 5, 1 through 5 last week, we talked about hope. Just three verses after this, Romans 5, 8, which is incidentally the first verse I ever preached out of, April of 2012 in this church. Very important passage to me personally. This passage speaks to, it's key, I think, to understanding why we are able to rejoice in the Lord though we have been rebuked for our sins. Paul says this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have this tendency when sin in our lives has been brought into the light to want to run and hide, right? And it has been, this is This has been true since the inception of sin. If you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fall, verse 8, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Immediately they hide, and we do this as well. We hide just like they do whenever our sins are uncovered. But the gospel pronounces to us the same thing that Isaiah 1.18 pronounced to God. God's people, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. This is the promise of the gospel to you. 
And, and listen to me, when you understand that, when you really connect with this, when you understand that the worst things that you've ever done in your life don't disqualify you from the love of Christ, that even the worst, most unspeakable things that you are guilty of have been paid for by the blood of Jesus, if you have believed the gospel and been born again, if you have repented and believed and been born again, there is no greater peace than knowing you've been forgiven. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace. Christ is our peace because Christ makes peace possible for us despite the fact we've done nothing to deserve it. This is where you can find it if you're looking. You can find peace when you find broken people fully transparent, their sin fully exposed before God and others, rejoicing, basking in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You can find peace in the midst of broken people rejoicing. Second, you can find peace in relationships being restored. Look at the very next phrase, verse 11. It says, aim for restoration. I'm reading out of the ESV. The, the NIV says, strive for full restoration. The New American Standard says, be made complete. The Christian Standard Bible says, become mature. These are all ways of translating the present middle imperative of the Greek katartidzo. It's a word that means to adjust thoroughly or to knit together tightly. It conveys the idea, listen to this, in, in the context of a group of people, of intertwining people together in a manner that is fitting, that fits well together. Now, I don't know if you've figured this out yet. Some people are very hard to fit together with. It's mostly you. It's definitely not me. Mrs. Bledsoe would take ex uh, exception to this, but she's lying. She's one of the problems that I'm talking about. Get the couch ready for me tonight, honey. People don't fit well naturally together. And I am the chief among them. We complain, we're temperamental, we are unnecessarily complicated, we're sinful. We have, we have the propensity to sin. So listen, fitting then into a community with broken people and learning to work together in spite of that brokenness, especially with those who don't have much chemistry to begin with, is very hard and taxing work. And yet, we're commanded to do so, to aim for restoration. Now, one good question might be, how do I practically do this? How does this work out practically speaking? What does it mean to aim for restoration? We look to Galatians chapter 6 for clarity on this issue. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, particularly verse 1, I think gives a very helpful breakdown for what it looks like to aim for restoration within relationships within a community. Read this together. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. There's that word again, restore, katartidzo. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you too be tempted. When, when someone's sin violates you or your community, you are to aim for restoration. And there are three requirements in this process that you need to bring to the table to do it rightly. Let's walk through them quickly. Number one, restoration requires forgiveness. Restoration requires forgiveness. Why would forgiveness be required in the process of restoring someone? 
because you'll be restoring someone who may or may not have caused great grief in your life because of their sin. We like to think of the restoration process as uh, like when, when someone has been convicted inwardly of their sin and the weight of it is just too much for them to bear. And so they come and they confess their sins before the people and ask in humility for forgiveness. Oh, woe is me. I've done horribly wrong, right? And certainly restoration is needed in these instances, but it's almost seen as sort of a reward for doing the right thing. Like, well... The Lord convicted you and you were obedient to confess, so we're going to restore you now. It is just as needed, if not arguably far more needed, when someone has been hiding their sin, they do not confess their sin but continue in it and eventually get caught. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, they didn't, get, they didn't confess, they got found out. He says, when that happens, you are to restore them. And listen, the likelihood of that sin and the dishonesty, the deception of keeping it from the, the community at large is likely to hurt you. So when you aim for restoration, then understand this, you need to bring forgiveness to the table with you. Now, Pastor Derek, what if I'm not ready to forgive yet? Well, then you're not ready to restore yet either. Well, what if I don't know how to forgive? Then you need to join a freedom group and learn how. Amen. I mean, forgiveness is a crucial part of the Christian faith. It's a crucial part of living out your faith. It is a requirement for restoration. Not only that, but restoration requires gentleness. Paul says you are to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Again, why would he say this? Because if you've been impacted personally by the sin of the person that you know uh, now needs to be restored, it's going to be very easy to act out of hurt and lash out at them. So restoration is going to require forgiveness of you. One litmus test as to whether or not you've really forgiven a person is whether you are able to restore them with gentleness. If you come to the table... And, and you lash out, and, and you're taking shots, and you're clearly angry, you clearly are not there yet. You need to work back, start the forgiveness process, then begin the restoration with gentleness. Third, notice he says, restoration also is going to require some humility out of you. This is perhaps one of the most important parts of this. He says at the very end of this verse, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, you're to restore the person with forgiveness, in hand, you're to do so with a spirit of gentleness, and you're to be aware throughout the entire process that you are no better than they are. As bad as their sin might be, as hurtful as it may be to the community you find yourself in, you need to always remember that you are capable of just as bad, if not worse, that you're no different. Listen, when I think less of someone because of their sin, it usually is an indicator that I think more of myself than I should. When I see people as below me, it's not because they're below me, it's because I've elevated myself. Humility is necessary. It is so hard for me to be judgmental and harsh and unforgiving towards someone who has just been caught in egregious sin if I am in touch with the reality that I am just as capable of that same sin as they are. This is a hard realization to come to. It is hard to look at the nasty nature of sin and think, you know, that could be me in three to five really bad decisions. This is one of the reasons why I'm so committed to the help, hope, and healing ministry of Jesus here for anyone 
who walks through those doors because there's no one worse than me. And when I remember that, when I remember that I'm no different than anyone else, it creates, or at least it should create a lot of humility as I deal with those who have hurt me because I recognize I'm just as capable of hurting others. And it gives me then the ability to empathize in those instances. If you want peace in your life, aim to restore broken relationships around you. Restored relationships are the epitome of peace. Broken relationships are very hard, aren't they? Especially during the holidays. I mean, it just sort of amplifies everything. It's very difficult. And let me say this clearly, because I, I, I want to be very specific for some of you in these circumstances. There are times when relationships simply cannot be restored. I'm aware of that as well, and you need to hear me say that. Sometimes people get caught in their sin, and they double down. They don't want restoration. They don't want forgiveness. They're unwilling to acknowledge what they did, so they don't really see any need for any of it. You can't restore that. It's a dead end. You can pray that God would break them. That's about it. But more often than not, most of the broken relationships that I see, that I've seen in my own life and that I've seen in others' lives, can be restored. You just have to be willing to do the hard work. It takes a lot of time, a lot of willingness and forgiveness and gentleness and some humility. If you want to find peace, you can find it in the midst of broken people rejoicing. You can find it in relationships being restored. You can find peace in burdens being relieved. Look at verse 11 again, the third phrase. He says, comfort one another. Comfort one another. It comes from parakaleste. Uh, parakaleo is the Greek underlying verb. To call alongside is how we would translate this literally. It, it conveys the idea of calling someone alongside you. We typically translate this as a comfort or an encouragement, right? You're bringing someone alongside yourself. You're not leaving them behind. It's an encouraging or comforting skill to learn. It's a skill, once again, that you can learn in the context of a freedom group here in this church. I wanted to, to share this because I, I realize we've got a lot of new folks here. Uh, the freedom group process may be very foreign to some of you. And so I wanted to just kind of break down what that looks like for those of you who are newer to the church. It's a small group of usually somewhere between 10 to 12 people, sometimes more, sometimes less, that meets generally for a definite period of time, usually somewhere between 13 to 15 weeks. The freedom groups are designed to provide a safe place for you to let go of the secrets that you've been keeping, the sins that you've been hiding, uh, or hurts that other people have waged against you that you have not adequately expressed or, or talked about or processed through. And it, and it also provides with it a process to actually work through it. So, you know, the, the, the initial part of kind of sharing this stuff is sort of, I, I like to uh, liken it, it's a rather unpleasant thing to think about, but vomiting, right? It, it's very unpleasant, but it, but it feels very satisfying afterwards. But, but there's a cleanup process, hopefully, if you're not a mess. There's a cleanup process, and that process is the other part of the Freedom Group process to actually work through what has just happened, to, to work through how you feel, the, how it's affected you, how it's impacted you, how certain traumatic things have shaped the way you relate to other people and perhaps God himself. Most groups here are Christ-centered, 12-step oriented. They're not all that way. Uh, a lot of them are, but the main thrust in all of them is to become willing to let go of those things, those hurts, those sins, those things that you've been keeping inwardly that have negatively impacted your capacity to walk with intimacy, not only with God, but with others. This is, by the way, uh, we believe 
crucial into really walking out the great commandment, which is to love God with everything you have and to love others as yourself. We find that trauma, sin, hidden sin, especially secrets, prevent that to a great extent. And as you let go of these things and work through them and receive help, hope, and healing in those instances, your capacity for intimacy grows. And one of the most incredible parts of this experience, and those of you who have been in these know this very well, is the comfort that you receive when you share. When you sit down for maybe the first time in your life and you tell a group of people the real nature of what you've done and their response is, yeah, us too. Thank you for sharing that. The kind of comfort, the peace that comes from that, from knowing that there are others who now know you, the real you, and still love you and have forgiven you as God loves you and forgives you, there's, there's feelings of comfort and peace that are really difficult to articulate, actually. That's the idea behind Paul's words. Now, can you do this outside of a freedom group? Absolutely. I would venture to say that this happens actually in this church more outside of freedom groups now than it does inside freedom groups. But you want to know why that is? Because the freedom group process here is not a program for a subset of people in the church. It's not celebrate recovery or regen, both of which are fine programs. This is not a program. Freedom groups represent the heart, the DNA of what City on a Hill is all about from the top down. We believe this matters in every aspect of church life, not just in freedom groups, but in life Bible studies and in life groups and in the preaching and, and in conversations in the hallways. I don't want our freedom groups just to be a safe place. I want City on a Hill to be a safe place. The freedom group is just where you cut your teeth on this stuff. It's where you take your first steps in transparency. It's the kiddie pool before you dive into the deep end of life, of church life. You learn these things, these skills and these freedom groups, and then you take them with you in, in everywhere else that you go. And actually, here's what happens. You become an agent of peace in everywhere you go because you now have the skill set and the transparency to call alongside other people who are struggling and walk with them through it. There's peace there. There's peace there. Fourth, you can find peace in unity being reached. Look at the fourth thing. He says, agree with one another. Now, why would he have to say this? Well, because what if I don't want to agree with you? I think actually this is one of the most profound aspects of church life. Paul is not implying that you have to agree with every single small detail of faith and practice and in life in general. It's not, it's not his point. In fact, the diversity of, of what a church kind of contains in, in, and I mean in, in diversity in every way, right? Uh, music, uh, movies, culturally, language, uh, politics, the whole nine yards. There is diversity. I, I say this all the time, but if, if you look around a room on any given Sunday in a, in a worship service, you would be hard-pressed to ever find this exact group of people in the same room anywhere else. It's just true, right? I mean, there's nowhere else you find every one of us together. Now, maybe there are other places where some of us might find things in common, but all together in one room? There's tremendous diversity here. But, but this is the whole beauty of church, right? It's what makes the church body so special is that we have unity in the shared mission of the gospel despite the fact that we might have small differences in every other category of life. There's peace in that. There's peace in knowing that I can walk into a church and know that not everyone is on the same page as me with every single detail of life and in spite of that, we can be deeply committed to the exact same mission, be unified around the gospel, and would have each other's backs in an instant. 
This is one of the reasons why I believe it is so important to keep the main thing the main thing. I have a lot of opinions on eschatology and spiritual gifts and a whole host of other issues that are very important to me as an individual follower of Christ. But they're secondary issues. They're secondary issues, meaning we can disagree and I'm okay with that. I mean, besides, I have the microphones. You have to listen to me more than I have to listen to you anyways. But joking aside, I'm okay with disagreement on, on some of those things. I can make a strong biblical case for why I believe what I believe, but I am also acutely aware of the fact that while the Bible is inerrant, my interpretation of it is not. I'm okay with admitting that. I'm okay with coming to certain things and going, you know, I may not have this right. I think I have it right. I put a lot of thought and study into it. I may not be right on this. There are certain things, however, that are crystal clear in the scripture that we cannot disagree on. We cannot disagree on the nature of the gospel, for example. We cannot disagree on the fact that there is only one way to heaven. Jesus is crystal clear about that. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't disagree on the sinless perfection of Jesus or the virgin birth, both of which are connected to one another. We can't disagree on the triune nature of God, uh, of the Trinity, that God is a Trinity. We cannot disagree on the nature and the prevalence and the problem of sin. Why? Because to alter those things would be to alter the very nature of who God is and what God has done and how he has clearly revealed himself in divine revelation, in scripture. To change this would be to move away from historic faith and into some kind of man-made religion. This is why orthodoxy matters. It's why historical theology, the Bible matters. We need to know what is essential. I love the saying, we say it a lot around here, I didn't make it up. Unity in the essential things, diversity in the non-essential things, charity in all things. Listen, when we walk that out, there's peace. There's peace. We will have peace because we will be unified in what matters. We are okay with diversity in what doesn't matter as much. And we can expect charity regardless of where we fall on these issues. There's beauty in that. There's peace in that. You'll find peace in the midst of broken people rejoicing, in relationships being restored, in burdens being relieved, in unity being reached last, and in hard conversations being received. Last thing he says is simply live in peace, irenuo, to work together towards peace or to cultivate peace. It's, it's in other words, the small day-to-day, sometimes hard conversations that need to be had in order to maintain unity to keep relationships intact, and to avoid more serious future sin from cropping up in your life that will one day need to be uncovered. We like to say it this way, it's keeping short accounts. It's keeping short accounts. Practically, here's what it means. It means when someone approaches you and addresses something that you are doing that is causing discord within the community of faith, whether it is intentional on your part or not, you may not even be aware that you're doing it. It means receiving what they are saying and moving forward together. Hard conversations are necessary for healthy relationships. There are, there are no such thing as healthy relationships without hard conversations. You know why? Because relationships involve two people, both of whom are sinners in need of a savior. Both of whom are messy and think way more highly of themselves than they actually are. This is true for any person necessary, both in the family and in the church family. Whenever I'm resistant to hard conversations, I'm just delaying progress is all I'm doing. So be open to this. When, when you are, when this kind of thing is received, 
peace usually follows. It usually, peace follows these hard conversations. You know, Christmas, again, I, I'm going to just keep coming back to this, and I, and I know you know this. You've probably felt it already. We're in day 10 of December. Christmas is crazy and chaotic for most people. So if you want to know where to find peace, yeah, ex exactly. If you want to know where to find peace, now you know where to look. You look here. You look at these sort of broken, messy, and yet redeemed actions within the people of God. Broken people rejoicing, restored relationships, burdens being relieved, comfort, hard conversations being received. And here's why peace follows. I want to end with this. Look at how Paul ends this verse. He says, after you do all those things, he says, and the God of peace, God of love and peace, will be with you. It's not only that doing these things naturally results more in peace, but that as you are obedient to the commandments of Scripture, the God of love and peace is there presently with you as well. So listen, if you don't have peace right now, a good question might be, which of these things am I doing well, and which of these things need some improvement in my life? Some of you are lacking peace because you have relationships that need restoring, and, and you know it. Some of you have burdens that need to be relieved. You need to let go of some things. Some of you just need some comfort. You don't have it. You need someone to call you alongside them and, and just sort of hear you and empathize with you, speak truth to you. Some of you are not receptive to hard conversations, so, so people have to kind of tiptoe around you. There's no peace in that. There's no peace in these things. Which of these things need work in your life? Because listen to me, the moment you begin to walk in obedience to this stuff, the God of peace will be with you as well. And then here's what that means. No matter what is happening in this crazy world we live in, whether it's the, the hustle and bustle of the holidays or a war in the Middle East, you will have peace. And you will maintain that peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Pray with me. Lord in heaven, we thank you God, for your goodness to us, that though we are broken, we might rejoice in the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. We might rejoice in knowing that there is hope for restoration and there is relief from burden and there is comfort to be had. And, and though it is hard, the taxing day-to-day -day work of maintaining peace, it's so worth it because you are with your people presently as we obey. We take heart in that. I pray, God, that your spirit would do the work that only he's able to do this morning by, by really highlighting in the hearts of your people areas where, where perhaps some improvement is needed. But perhaps it's not that, that life isn't peaceful, but that we're just being disobedient. And that when obedience comes, peace follows. Would you inspire obedience in these ways and follow them with your love and peace as they go? We look to that day, Lord, when you return to usher in total peace. But until then, God, we, 
we say that what you provide to us through the gift of your Holy Spirit, your indwelling Holy Spirit, is enough. And we're grateful. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. We'll see you next week to talk about joy.